Welcome to episode 79 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Patrick Wallace, a resident at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and member of the AAEM RSA Education Committee, speaks with Dr. Jorge Antonio Fernandez, an assistant professor of clinical emergency medicine at Los Angeles County USC Medical Center. Today, Drs. Wallace and Fernandez discuss understanding compensation metrics, RVUs, and the evolving economics of emergency medicine. Hello, this is the AAEM Resident Podcast. I'm Patrick Wallace. I'm a first-year resident at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas Emergency Medicine Program. And we're here at AAEM Spring Assembly. We are with Dr. Jorge Fernandez from UCSD. We just finished his awesome talk uh, titled Understanding Your Compensation, Metrics, RVUs, and the Evolving Economics of Emergency Medicine. So first, Dr. Fernandez, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everybody. I am currently one of the APDs and clerkship director over at UC San Diego and the Department of Emergency Medicine. I also am on the board of directors for California ASEP and actively involved in that. Finally, I just wanted to throw out that I have long history of working in both academic as well as community sites and within the community sites working at ones that are more RVU based and as an independent contractor and uh, incorporation versus alternatively on a pure salaried structure like at Kaiser. And so uh, I have a bit of historical perspective, I think and real-world perspective on this, this topic. Excellent. We're glad you're here. So just like the title says, we're going to be talking about metrics and RVUs and kind of what is up and coming in uh, the economics of emergency medicine. So first question for you, Dr. Fernandez, what are the different types of metrics that we use in emergency medicine? And what are kind of some of the pros and cons of each of those? Hmm. So I like to think of this question as divided into two tiers. Number one, metrics that an ED group looks at and or a hospital looks at. So those type of metrics are, for example, door-to-doctor time, time spent in the waiting room, radiology or lab turnover times, time to dispo. Okay. Those are all very, th- those are all departmental flow issues and are important at the individual provider lev- level because you're part of that. But then there's also, and, and they're also important to the bottom line of the organization as well. And then there's other metrics that really depend on the individual practitioner, which is the number of patients you see per hour, as well as the number of RVUs that you're generating per hour. As part of the RVUs question, and the number of RVUs of, that you're actually seeing, a big component of that is how is your individual coding and billing, assuming you're using a fee-for-service model. And so what I mean by that is, are you coding the appropriate E&M level code for the visit? For example, if you see a critical care patient, are you accidentally not billing for critical care and just billing at a level three chart, which is a huge difference in terms of what you'll get paid for versus if you actually appropriately document what the, the actual work that you did for critical care. Excellent. Now you're, you're brought up RVUs. Explain for us, since there's probably people listening who are brand new to medical school, we also have residents listening, probably even some attendings who have years of experience. What exactly is an RVU? And 
you know, what's, what's a good number? What's one RVU? Is it 15 RVUs? Can you, that's a very broad question. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, uh, so an RVU is basically a, it's defined as a relative value unit by CMS, basically the government organization that runs Medicare. And I like to think of it as that what a new office visit for a basic problem in a primary care visit would be the equivalent of a one RVU of one for us in the ED as well to very basic visits that, maybe med refills and making sure that their diabetes is okay would be billed as a, you know, a one RVU visit. Importantly, the RVUs depend from, they vary from specialty to specialty. And so that's important to take into consideration. So emergency medicine, because we're dealing with more acute patients that are presumably more complicated and have potentially worse outcomes immediately, we will be paid more RVUs relative Compare, as compared to just a, a family practice routine outpatient visit, sure, sure. even though they both are being classified as outpatient new visits. So it varies from specialty to specialty. Uh, regarding the question of like how many, is, what's a good RVU, that's also def, uh, variable. But in general, though, uh, things that will augment your RVUs, and it, incre- it'll basically increase your charge by the, each patient will be... Number one, the level of E&M code that you're billing at. And so there are five different E&M codes, levels one through five. You, you may have heard of these E&M, just level one visit or level two or level three. Sure, Most sure. ED visits are levels three, fours, mm-hmm. and fives. And so if you can, and as long as it's legitimate and not fraudulently bill for, let's say, let's say you, the, a patient you see appropriately is a level five complex patient with an elder, let's say an elderly patient with chest pain who may have acute coronary syndrome. Uh, but it could be PE or dissection or something else too. And you're reviewing mm-hmm. old charts and you're you're doing a big workup and you're ultimately admitting to the hospital for observation and more invasive workup. That's clearly a level five type visit. But if you're all, if you're missing documentation, that 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 then makes that chart be downcoded to a level three or a level four visit. That is a huge difference in terms of RVUs. That's not what we want. Uh, no, I, yeah, maybe the patient, the patient might want that because they're going to get a smaller bill, sure. but in terms of like from an ED provider, in terms of the, the work that you're actually doing, that you have done getting credit for that work, it can mean the difference of getting paid for, let's say five RBUs versus four. And that's very yeah. arbitrary, but yeah. five RBUs versus four RBUs for the difference in that visit. Yeah. Now, and how do we, in the chart, what things need to be in there for it to be a level five versus a level three? That's great. I kind of just dumb it down to like. I think of this level four, level level three is pretty much we do it all the time. So as long as you're remembering to include your different check boxes of like you actually do a you know chief complaint in a history and a okay. past medical so you know basically any past medical history, do a cup like one system or two system review. You're gonna getting a level three chart is not going to be a challenge at all. Okay. As long as you are documenting it appropriately and not cryptically or just in a one liner, a, sure, a, sure. a haiku or something. A level, level four. four now moves you up to where you need um, some modifiers on your history. So, for example, you want to make sure, like, if you use the OPQRST format for in terms of, like, say, qualifying your pain or exacerbating alleviating factors or prior workup, um, any of those basically will increase. Those are modifying factors that get you credit to bring up your history from the level three level to a level four level. You also need to have four four different systems reviewed in terms of the standard systems, and you need to have four different physical exam systems documented as well. And that's nice because it's four. Level four is four. And so <laughs> that's, that's the way I think about it. So I just think of four HPI elements, four Rubio system elements, and four physical exam elements. All right, that one I can remember. Yep. Level five is a much more complicated one where you go, you jump up from a 
um, you still stay at four for the HPI, but now your review assistant needs 10 okay. systems as opposed to just four systems. And your physical exam needs eight systems as opposed to just four systems. So it's definitely more complicated. So we've moved from four, four, and four up to four, 10, and eight, if you're thinking again, history elements, review of system elements, and physical exam elements. Now there's a shortcut you can do that a lot of people do is the review of systems. You can be that all other system, all systems were reviewed and yeah. were otherwise negative. And so that is a shortcut that you can do. Another easy shortcut that comes up all the time that people don't take advantage of is if the patient is altered or has dementia or there's for whatever reason the urgency of the situation doesn't allow you to do a 10-point review of systems you can actually state that in review of systems it was limited by acuity of presentation unstable vital signs or alternatively it was limited by dementia and maybe even a poor historian and that way you don't have to actually do the you will still get credit for potentially for level five just by having that level five caveat in there for review of systems, okay. but you will still need to do your eight physical exam elements no matter what. Regardless if they're Regardless. attended or yes. completely conscious. Yes, everyone needs to get a level five, they need eight physical exam elements in terms of different systems examined. Another shortcut around there though is that if they actually qualify for critical care, then you don't have to worry about any of this. And then you just have to basically bill it as critical care and just say why you think it was critical care. And usually you need to have three different qualifiers for that. You need to have, number one, it's a very unstable patient. So obviously a patient who is very, you know, chronic, a, pa a patient with where you're addressing a chronic issue will not qualify for critical care for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. Number two, you have to be devoting undivided attention to that patient for 30 minutes in duration at least at a minimum. So um, minimum 30 minutes. Correct. And that doesn't necessarily have to be at the bedside for 30 minutes, but you're dividing undivided attention to the patient. That could be talking to EMS, talking to family, reviewing old records, reviewing results, point of care test results, doing an ultrasound if you don't bill it separately. You can, if, if, if procedures are bundled into the critical care, then you can count that within your total time. All right. But not if you are billing for your procedure separately. Like so most people bill procedures separately from mm -hmm. critical care, and that way you can kind of double dip and you get your 30 to 74 minutes of critical care, which is just a blanket payment, regardless of whether it was 30 or 74 minutes. So you'll bill for that amount of critical care. And additionally, you will also bill for the procedures that were performed. And so, for example, your EKG, your chest, if you did, can do an x-ray interpretation, your bedside ultrasound interpretation, any type of CPR that was done, obviously things like intubation, central lines, the, there's a long list of different procedures you can bill for. And so you can tease that out as long as the other care that you provided, aside from your procedures, amounted to 30 minutes or longer. Okay, and that note for critical care time just has to be in my chart in the MDM somewhere? Correct, yes, you need to explicitly say, state that your critical care time was, you have to actually give an exact number of critical care time that you provided, and so I usually just estimate somewhere between 45 and 70 minutes in that, just, I guess, again, it's a gross estimation in terms of, but it's, again, it's a single blanket payment regardless of that time, as long as it's under 74 minutes mm -hmm. and it's beyond 30 minutes, you're going to get that blanket payment. And so you have to say that, you have to state why you had to do the critical care, why you thought the patient was critical. And in that case, you don't actually need to worry about then your HPI having four elements or your review of systems having 10 elements or your physical exam having eight elements. They could have two elements each or none. Or one, you could just summarize mm -hmm. things, and because that's basically, it's uh, critical care just kind of trumps everything else. All righty. So critical care time, when that goes in your chart, that's your, that's your trump card. Correct. So next question, Dr. Fernandez, how do I earn RVUs? So RVUs are pretty, it's pretty straightforward. You basically document what you did. And in terms of, the, uh, we talked a little bit about level, uh, E&M coding and the appropriate level. And so as long as you're documenting and meeting the documentation, documentation requirements for a particular E&M code, 
you will get paid for that. Likewise, for any procedures that you did, as long as you're documenting that you did the procedure, you will get paid for that as well, too. And that collectively uh, will, uh, will determine the number of RVUs that were paid per patient. Now, next question. How do I maximize my efficiency in earning RVUs? That's a really good question and a difficult question because that really goes, earning RVUs, again, has everything to do with the documentation that you did. Because by definition, RVU is valuing the work that you've done. It's, a, it's fee for service. It's, value, it's valuing the actual medical decision-making that you're making, the procedures that you're doing. And so as long as you're documenting that appropriately, you're going to get credit for it. So the faster, in my mind, the faster you can document appropriately, the more you will be efficient in earning RVUs. And so that's the reason why we have so many different EDs moving towards scribes, for example, because they're freeing physician time to not have to worry about documenting at all. So um, essentially these scribes are doing a lot of the, the documentation and the physicians are doing the work to get the RVUs and the scribes are coming behind them and documenting all of it for them. Is that right? It's exactly right. And what do you think are some of the pros and cons to using this system of RVUs and the fee the fee-based system versus a different system? So uh, historically, we have been in an RVU-based system. Uh, Medicare was basically founded on that, and uh, that's colloquially known as fee-for-service. And there's, there are benefits of fee-for-service. It's very transparent, number one. It's, you, know, you know what an R, how to earn an RVU, and you know that, that the, for example, a level three is worth this much, and a level five is worth that much, and this procedure is worth that much, and it's, uh, that's true across the board. There are some geographic modifiers, but for, for the most, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's a transparent system. It's also very efficient and maximizes your operating efficiency potentially as well because you're going to be rewarded for seeing more patients and, and for working faster. And so that, uh, in terms of operational efficiency, I think fee-for-service model is great. How about the downsides now, the cons to RVU-based system? So, yeah, so the downside is that it, number one, it incentivizes overbilling. And so up, up, rather than downcoding, upcoding. So you could imagine that you're upcoding consistently all your level threes up to level fours and all your level fours up to level five and maybe falsely doing critical care when you didn't really need to do it. And particularly for procedures, I think that's a huge problem that we have in that it's rewarding physicians for doing procedures that may not always be necessary, especially if you're in a gray zone of should we do a procedure or not. You're going to certainly be paid a, be paid a lot more in a fee-for-service RVU-based system if you actually do that procedure than in an alternative system where you're just salaried or in the uh, newer payment model ones that where they're actually trying to do less, where less is actually more. The other Another con is that it's also vari variable from specialty to specialty, and historically, surgical specialties have been greatly rewarded by the RVU system. Uh, again, and or procedurally based specialties as well. So specialties like dermatology, gastroenterology, and interventional radiology, they are getting huge numbers of RVUs for the work that they're, that they're doing relative to the family practitioner who's trying to coordinate sure. the patient's care and avoid a hospital admission mm -hmm. and trying to save the healthcare system money and also maybe even do what's best for the patient. They are so, so. So there's perverse incentives potentially in the system. And I would I would imagine. Uh, you take a lot of physicians who enjoy doing procedures or in a procedure-based procedure, procedure -based, uh, specialty and you put them in a gray zone and offer them payment for doing a procedure, then they're probably going to take it. I know most emergency medicine physicians love a, a good procedure. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's true for, I think it's just human nature that I think if we're in a gray zone, of course, if there's an incentive that you're going to make more money for doing something, if especially all things else being equal, if you think it's not going to hurt the patient, it might even help the patient, then sure, let's do it. And it's particularly if the patient's not necessarily paying for it directly, but it's being paid indirectly by an insurance company or by the government. And so that makes perfect sense to me. And that's happening not just solely with, I think within emergency medicine, we're probably pretty good about most, you know, thinking of cost benefit and time efficiency. But I think for, I think the challenge is when you have some of these, some of these procedural based specialties are, that's their bread and butter. And they are being rewarded for doing endoscopies on people who do not need endoscopies, mm -hmm. for example. And just increasing healthcare costs. Exactly. Do all companies and groups use RVUs, or is it just some of them? I think it's ver fairly balanced. Most places these days pay attention to it, unless you're in a pure government organization that, for example, the military, the VA. Certain places that are private, like Kaiser, are more integrated systems where you're actually just paid purely on an hourly basis and overall on your patient satisfaction and not at all on an RVU basis. But that being said, most academic places that I know and certainly community-based emergency physician groups are paid with an RVU system. Most places also use a hybrid system these days where there you, you get a certain portion of your income as a sal fixed salary, uh, as an hourly wage, and then it's supplemented by an RVU bonus that you get on top of your hourly wage. That's how we get paid, for example, at UC San Diego. All right, that's very helpful. Now, the last question we have for Dr. Fernandez, he's kind of one of our experts in the emerging economics of emergency medicine, and I'm hoping he can tell us a little bit about the value-based care that we might be seeing. Yeah, there's a big shift happening for, we, we've kind of touched on it a little bit. Uh, there's, uh, I, the motivation is just increasing healthcare costs over time in the United States as a relative percentage of our GDP especially as the baby boomer generation ages and they're living longer, the Medicare costs are skyrocketing over time. And at the same time, our healthcare outcomes, uh, at least in terms of population-based outcomes, are terrible compared to almost any other advanced country in the world. And so there's a big disconnect there. And there is a big emphasis in the last 20 to 30 years on how do we contain healthcare costs, but in a way that you can optimize population outcomes and individual outcomes as well. And so this idea of value-based care, it's, it's, it's really taken hold in the last, in, in this decade. Mm -hmm. And it's been largely due to the influence of major organizations within the House of Medicine and advocacy by the AMA, for example, and ASAP and AEM. And all these different physician organizations are basically having a seat at the table, trying to come up collaboratively with legislators ways to contain healthcare costs that will improve population-based health and individual outcomes and quality care, rather than just doing a, as was suggested, prior to 2010, in the 1990s, and through the early two, 2000 years, there was actually uh, sp supposed to be just a flat cut on physician payment uh, within Medicare, 20% pay cut that was like looming over everybody, and it kept being stalled, and kept being stalled, and this was the way uh, that organized medicine could avoid that, is that we avoided that draconian 20% cut across the board by saying that, hey, we'll, pay, we'll, we'll take a seat at this table. We will actively work on actually trying to move from a fee-for-service system to a fee-for-value system. 
where we are going to pay attention to things like both individual and population-based outcomes and try to cut unnecessary health care costs and administration in order to save Medicare dollars while at the same time re- retaining great care. And so that's where we're at these days now. Now, during your lecture on the value-based care system, you had an excellent example kind of using a headache. Do you want to run through that with us? Just sure. to kind of put everything in perspective. Sure. So there's a this, uh, one of the uh, current programs that are out there that a lot of EDs now are going to be subject to is the MIPS program. It's a merit-based incentive program that looks at different uh, indicators. Basically, there's four different indicators that they look at that will contribute to your MIPS either payment or penalty, depending on how you do on all of these. And these are, uh, in general, quality. Uh, They are uh, practice improvement uh, activities done by your entire group. They are informatics and integrated um, healthcare information systems and resource utilization. And so the example that I gave in my talk was an idea of a hypothetical case of a headache patient. You can imagine that comes to the ED and it's somebody who, for all intents and purposes, really doesn't meet any indication for a head CT, but maybe the patient is strongly advocating for themselves to have a head CT. And under the fee-for-service model, there is no consequence for ordering that head CT. However, in the MIPS program, you would actually make, you would get a higher payment on this visit if you did not do the head CT than if you did do the head CT. And in fact, you would be penalized if you did a head CT in that case. So if we said there's, let's say, a 10% MIPS payment correlate to your payment overall as a percentage of your RVU, then let's say you were going to get paid $100 previously just based on an RVU system. And so 10% of a MIPS payment can mean $110 versus $90. And so that's where we are currently right now is right around 9% for MIPS. But the the proportion of the, or I should say the percentage of MIPS relative to the overall payment was going to increase over time. And so you can imagine a scenario later on where it's like 25% of your bill. And so then that would be the difference of $125 versus $75 for that same exact visit. So this huge incentive to really practice smart medicine and not just go ordering tests uh, as much as you can. Correct. And so that is a a good example of just trying to incorporate a a value-based system and fee-for-value as opposed to just plain fee-for-service. And so most emergency physician groups right now are looking at having a hybrid system right now where it's mainly RVU-based and fee-for-service, but then there's a small component of it that is based on value-based care. All right. Well, thank you so much for summing that up for us. We are about out of time. I want to thank Dr. Fernandez for joining us today at AAEM. We're at Spring Assembly having a blast and had some great lectures. So thank you again so much for being here. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about AAEM RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.